beyond being a reporter and a human and we do these stories to make human connections. Welcome to Unearth Women, the podcast that connects women around the globe through shared experiences and travel. On today's episode, Nikki Vargas, Unearth Women co-founder, catches up with Vice correspondent Isabel Young. Recently returned to the UK, Isabel discusses the resilience and humanity on the front lines in Italy's ICUs, the importance of empathy in journalism, and the rise of xenophobia and racism, as well as glimmers of hope while in quarantine. Thank you for taking the time to talk to me today. Yeah, I'm okay. <laughs> I'm surviving. How are you? I mean, I'm good. It's tough to travel, so it's weird for both of us, I guess, at the moment. It definitely is. So, are you in New York right now? No, I'm in London. Okay, I, so you're in London. Yeah. How is the situation in London right now? It's you know, um, it's not that different to New York in terms of the lockdown measures. It is people are getting incredibly frustrated and a little bit cabin feverish and um, are really looking for some guidance from the government, but it is what it is. Can you describe what the situation in Italy is like while you were there reporting on this story? So we went there because, you know, Italy was the first Western country to be really badly hit by the coronavirus outbreak. It was a few weeks ahead of the US, parts of the US and certainly the UK. And we wanted to see what the situation was like. You know, we spent time, as you said, with people on the front line. So people in ICU, paramedics, with funeral directors, all these people who were really seeing what was happening firsthand. And it was really heartbreaking. They were really exhausted. I'm talking to them still. So I know that they are still incredibly exhausted, somehow just managing to keep up the stamina of going through this. What we wanted to get was to the human toll of what is happening there and what's happening around the world. Um, And it continues to be this kind of collective trauma that I think so many people are going through. So while you were in Italy, obviously you were reporting on this shortly after the height of their outbreak. And I wanna know, were you concerned for your personal health and safety while reporting this story? Yeah, I mean, it's such a strange one, isn't it? Because, I mean, I obviously, I travel to a lot of dangerous places, often places that are quite risky. Um, and so I'm, I'm somewhat used to, the, to that, and I wasn't really fearful for my own safety. But I have to say for this story, obviously, you don't want to, the last thing you want to be is an asymptomatic carrier. Um, and so I was more concerned about the safety of other people and people I might come into contact with. So because of that, it was a risky assignment. So what we did was we just planned every single interaction that we could possibly have had. So we kept a really small crew. We actually drove the whole 18 hours over to Italy from the UK um, to make sure that we were really minimizing any contact with people. Um, we maintained social distance at all times. We mm-hmm. we quarantined um, both before and after doing the story. So it was a lot of planning. I don't normally <laughs> go into like so much logistical planning. I tried to avoid mm-hmm. that, but this was a lot of planning for one story. But yeah, I mean, it felt worthwhile to do just to, yeah. to, you know, the seriousness of what was going on there and what is still going on there and to highlight the, the situation for, for individuals. What is it like to report in an environment like this, like a global pandemic? What are some of the challenges? What are things that are different from reporting pre-coronavirus and pre-pandemic? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, so much is different at the moment. It's hard to even process it or keep track of it. On a practical level, things are challenging. You can't just jump on a plane and go to somewhere. You have to 
firstly, you have to know that the store is really, really worthwhile just to, to travel anywhere, um, even to leave your home. And secondly, I mean, there's so many yeah, practical things in terms of making sure that you don't come in contact with people, really like planning things to excruciating detail. And then on a personal level, I mean, obviously, every this story is everyone's story. You know, everyone yeah. feels that it's theirs. Everyone, if you see these images of um, hospitals or of dead bodies coming out, you all, our thoughts immediately go to our own family. We're all terrified that this, and we have some, we live with so much anxiety that this could mm-hmm. be us. And so there's a real a real personal um, connection to the story that you don't always have with other yeah. stories. There is um, a scene in the report that you did, and it is a scene where you are at the hospital in Bergamo, and you're taken into a room, and you just see these bags filled with personal belongings of all the people that have passed away. For some reason, that scene hit me harder than the scene of you later on mm-hmm. with all the coffins and the bodies being loaded because it's just... It, it's just so powerful that sort of like these these belongings that belong to people who went into the hospital with all the hope in the world of recovery and never left. And so I want to talk to you about what you were feeling in that moment and the emotional toll of reporting on a story that is filled with so much death. Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, I think that we kind of get swept up in the statistics of things and we hear so much about the numbers. Um, and it's really hard to register that, isn't it? I mean, mm-hmm. I think over 27,000 people have died in Italy alone, um, and that's the highest rate in Europe so far. But it doesn't really hit home until you see something like that and just walking into a small space where you just see these bags piled up of people who clearly had, you know, had their last moments alone without their family members, without the people they loved the most around them. And it's really heartbreaking. Suddenly all of those stats all of those facts kind of hit home because you realize oh shit like you know the survival rate in that hospital was about 30 percent um which means that seven out of ten people aren't walking out of that hospital and it's just really heartbreaking just to think about the loneliness of it all that's sort of a theme throughout the report that yeah it's a cheery cheery report (laughs) yeah yeah it's not not cheery but it's so important (laughs) there's a scene in the report where you're watching bodies in wooden coffins sort of being uplifted into a a military truck for cremation and one after another they're uplifted in a forklift and you say something that's so true which is despite all the efforts to give these victims of coronavirus a dignified passing at the end it comes off very clinical and almost mechanical and I want to talk a little bit more about that because I, I think we're all inundated with the numbers. And, and how do you find, as a journalist, the humanity in a story that's so vast and, and that gets distilled down to numbers? Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think that I, um, I've seen my fair share of death. I've seen a lot of, um, you know, I report on a lot of war zones and report in a lot of places where Unfortunately, people are in really vulnerable situations and you see a lot of people in their last moments. And you don't really expect to see it in somewhere like Italy, which is just such an, I mean, every place I go to is incredible, but Italy is like such an incredibly civilized country with such a deep history, such a deep culture. um, And people are just so warm. And I personally have like recollections of going there on a holiday as a kid. How can you like process that? I mean, it's just, just seeing that sheer number of bodies coming out. It just, 
it doesn't, I don't know if it registers at the moment because you, it does feel so clinical. It feels like just a humongous amount of death that like, it doesn't feel connected to anything. Um, and I think that's why it's important, like within our stories and what I always try to do in um, my reports is to find those individuals, um, to find stories of people because we're able to connect with people um, to become empathetic to people to be compassionate and I think if there's one thing that we can take away from this is that you know as we're sitting here we know that the world is smaller than we think I think it's still so incredibly important to be doing this work um, I really believe in it because I think that um, we need to be um, empathizing we need to be more compassionate than ever we need to be looking to other parts of the world to, to relate our stories and I think that by finding individuals um, that we can really empathize with is, is a way to do that. Do you think you'll do another coronavirus report either in the UK or in the United States to sort of continue the the message and continue to expose the humanity in these situations that are hitting home? I mean it's definitely not a story that's going anywhere I don't really think that there's a huge thirst for stories beyond um, coronavirus. It's a story that is hitting every single corner of the globe almost. Um, and yeah, I mean, I'm working on a story now that is, um, it's more kind of peripherally about coronavirus. It's about um, the rise in Asian racism um, mm -hmm. around the world and particularly in the US and the rise in xenophobia um, in other parts of the world. But yeah, I mean, this, this pandemic has hit so much of what it means to be alive at the moment that um, it's impossible to ignore. It's impossible not to continue telling these stories. I agree with you. It's absolutely, I mean, it's, it has hit every, every industry. It has affected everyone. This is such a multi-layered discussion and it's impossible to talk about coronavirus without not only talking about the global impacts, but also the personal impacts. And what connects all of us right now is that we're all experiencing this in very different ways. And I think that there's ways to connect both in that, in commiserie, but also in the ways that we're finding little joys in this situation. Yeah. I do wanna to talk to you about quarantine and finding little joys, but before I do, I wanna get back to the report that you're working on because I think it's so important, which is <laughs> racism and xenophobia right now has been a huge issue, but it's exacerbated right now especially against the Asian community. And I know that you used to live in China and you're of Chinese descent, is that correct? Yeah, I'm yeah. half Chinese. Yes, so this hits home for you. And I, and I wanna talk to you a little bit about what you're experiencing. Have you gotten any negative backlash on the internet? And are you, how are you handling it? I don't live in, I'm in the UK at the moment um, mm -hmm. with my family, so I consider myself lucky in some ways because I think in some ways the UK hasn't been as badly hit by xenophobia as the US although it is still definitely present I mean my heart broke a little bit the other day because my um my dad had a bunch of verbal abuse thrown at him and my dad mm. is just the sweetest guy in the world who I yeah. have so much admiration and respect for um and so and has worked just so hard and really been that like model minority um all his living life in the UK and so it's really heartbreaking to hear those stories I mean in terms of I get constant backlash from online um, that I have learned to deal with and learned to kind of try not to take to heart it spurs me on if anything because I feel like that kind of backlash that I get is just 
ignorance and it's misinformation. Um, and so my job is to inform and to educate and to um, make sure that people understand that this is not um, a, the fault of certainly any Asian Americans um, who happen to be of a certain skin color of a certain race. Yeah, it's it, it spurs me on to do my work, to be honest. And that's great. And I think messaging is so important. And I find that in every good reporting and in every good story, there's the nugget of information that you want your viewers, you want your readers to take away and to chew on. And mm. um, But I want to talk to you about the message from your Italy report. And for people who watched it, for people who will watch it, what is the takeaway that you want them to have in watching this story? Um. I mean, I hate to be the messenger of doom and gloom, which I feel like I always am. But I mean, you know, you, we can look to Italy and I think there are signs of hope. Um, you know, we've seen the daily death toll decreasing over the last um, few days, and that's a, definitely a positive sign. Um, however, I think that we need to be really cautious when we look at that. I think overall the numbers are much, much higher than we know, the unofficial numbers you know, this is not over. It's a really, really long battle. And it's not just the battle of Italy. I think that, as I said, you know, this is a moment to really empathize with people from all over the globe, to put ourselves in their shoes, to realize that, yes, it is incredibly frustrating being stuck inside and feeling like a cage tiger like I do right now, not being able to get out. But at the same time, there are so many people who are going through just such extreme trauma um, at such an extraordinary time, you know, having to know that their family members are going through real pain at a really, really lonely experience is just really so much harder than we're going through at home or most of us are going through at home at the moment. How do you see the world economy going back online? And I know that that is a massively vast question. question. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a huge question and we can break it down to the United States and the UK and there really is no right or wrong answer. It's at this point, all of us are just, it's a matter of opinion for all of us. But how do you, how do you see this sort of moving forward? It's going to be hard to do it all at once. I mean, one thing that um, a lot of Italian um, government uh, ministers were telling me and officials were telling me is that this is going to have to happen in stages. We have to realize that if they were to open up, back, open up and release some of the more extreme lockdown measures at the moment that it would just be an immediate second wave you know what we've seen in places like china is that it has been um they have been somewhat successful although i still think that there is a lot of misinformation when it comes to the numbers around china um because they've never exactly been a transparent government you know what they have been able to do is somewhat contain it um and then it's been it was a really really long time and then they were able to um, release those lockdown measures gradually and um, throughout the country. And it's still something that they're having to monitor. There was an increase in April um, on the board in China on the border of Russia, um, where a number of Russians came over, and um, the there was a, another cluster again. So it's just really, um, it's really, it has to be gradual, I think, um, and it has to be the right timing. Um, and if we look at history, you know with previous pandemics, those countries and those places who were able to keep those lockdown measures in place and then able to lift them gradually and at the right time with the backing of science um, were the ones that recovered quicker. So I think it is in all of our interests to do that. And I know that that is just incredibly frustrating. And it, 
yeah, it's it's absolutely frustrating. And yeah. I I want to reiterate that you know that's a tough question for everyone to answer. World leaders, everyone, and and no one knows where this situation is going to go. And it, it's tricky. It's a tough time. And yeah. and it's a, it's coronavirus hits on so many levels. And one of the levels that it definitely hits on is journalism. Journalism, I believe the number is, at least in the United States, uh, 33,000 journalists and editors are now out of work. We're seeing major publications like Box News furlough over 140 staffers. We're seeing journalists and editors get laid off, like yours truly. You know, we, we're really just seeing sort of a systematic collapse and defunding of journalism. And, and that's, I want to, you know, that's not new, as you know, like that is, you know, journalism has been struggling for years now for various reasons, but under the pressures of coronavirus, it's really just sort of exacerbated. And I want to talk to you about being a journalist in the time of coronavirus and in your network of journalists and editors, are you seeing the effects of that? Are you seeing fellow editors and journalists getting laid off, getting furloughed? And, 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 and how are you dealing with that personally? How is that emotionally you dealing with that? Yeah. Yeah, it's hard. I mean, I think I, I have a lot of peers and a lot of friends who um, are out of work right now, especially freelancers, because I mean, journalism is an industry that relies so heavily on freelancers. And that's really hard because, you know, those people are my friends. They're people I call up to go on shoots the whole time. And knowing that they're without work um, is really difficult at a time when a lot of these people have families, a lot of them have um, immediate needs that they um, are not being able to meet. Um, so, yeah, but I mean, it's also just not affecting just them. Is it? I mean, my, my whole family are in the restaurant industry and they are um, struggling a lot um, in their own way. So, yeah, it's, it's just across the board. Um, I mean, at Vice, I think we have been lucky so far. Um, I touched with it because there was also a recent Wall Street Journal uh, leak. I don't know if you saw it, but um, yeah. saying that they were planning to um, to get rid of 300 people or so in uh, across Vice Digital, which is mm. a lot of colleagues. Um, so that's hard. I mean, they've asked. Um, I've taken a 20% pay cut. A lot of my um, colleagues have taken a 20% pay cut. Um, but yeah, we just kind of there's nothing to do is there apart from <clears throat> kind of hold on and see what happens and I hope that um, once things are back to normal that you know advertising and digital uh, media etc will pick back up because I think it's so important um, and it's not really just not a I think a lot of people have been questioning their own abilities recently um, or certainly a lot of my friends are in the journalism industry um, and I think that it's really it's so important to remember that it, this is not a question of our own skills or abilities it's um it's really just circumstances and it's um it, it will it will get better <laughs> yeah and that is, and that is so true to remember that this is this is an unprecedented situation that all of us no matter what industry you're in no matter where you live that we are all struggling with to varying mm -hmm. degrees and if you've been laid off if you've had pay cuts if you've been furloughed unfortunately it's it, you're right it's not a reflection of skills it's not a reflection of your resume or your caliber of employer it's it's unfortunately nothing more than being collateral damage to a situation that is so much bigger than yeah. any of us and 
with journalism in particular, you know, one of the questions that keeps getting thrown away is, or thrown around, I'm sorry, is uh, will journalism survive this? And I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. You know, I, it's, it's a good question with so many people being laid off for a load, having pay cuts and publications folding and niche publications disappearing. A lot of people are wondering if the media will be left standing. And mm-hmm. as someone in the media, you know, what do you, how do you feel about that? I think that there's never been a more important time for journalism, um, not only with what we're seeing um, in the US, but also with um, you know authoritarian governments around the world. Um, a lot of places are using coronavirus to um, advance authoritarian needs and desires. Um, I think it's so important that um, journalists are holding governments uh, across the world to account for that. Mm-hmm. Um, I also do maybe it's me being um, egotistical, which is quite likely, but I do think that there is and will always be a need for um, information. You know, it's one of our rights and I, I can't imagine um, a world where that industry is going to disappear. And maybe we do have to be adaptable and rethink the way that we're telling stories, that we're, we're doing things. Um, I mean, recently, like with this uh, next story that I'm doing, for example, like I'm still in isolation. I can't travel to the places I want to be in to tell these stories. And so we're having to be creative and be imaginative with the with the ways that we're doing that. Um, and that uh, is definitely challenging. Um, but I think it's probably, in the end, a positive challenge for us in terms of figuring out um, where we want this industry to be going to, as, as a matter of survival as well. And I agree with you so much. I, I truly believe, and, and, and it may be insane optimism, but I believe that so long as there are stories to tell, there will be people to tell them. And journalism yeah. journalism will survive. And and I, I truly believe in that. So I am, it may be yeah, egotistical, I'm, I'm in the same boat as you. <laughs> I have to hold on to We that. may be biased. There's a good chance yeah. we're biased. But um, I think that um, there's also industries that have, um, I mean, sorry, there's, publications that have really been so commendable in adapting to this you know i mean the bbc in the uk for example has done so well they've had so much traffic um they've stripped down on all their non-essential programming but they've really doubled down in terms of coronavirus coverage um which means that the public here is i would say so much better informed than um what you're seeing in the us which is so much misinformation and so much noise um, and I, you know, publications like the New York Times are doing incredibly well um, with making their coronavirus coverage um, available for free online, etc. So, um, you know, there are places that are adapting um, and that are excelling at this time. And I think that anyone who is able to tell good stories that count, there is just such a thirst for them um, now, and I think there always will be. And human interest stories, which you know, yeah, like your Italy reporting, I think the more granular the reporting is and the more humane it is, which is to say mm-hmm. we're so, we're inundated with this top level reporting of the daily briefings and the daily numbers and the daily death counts. And so reporting like yours, where you're speaking to this lovely elderly man in Italy who's, who's crying about the fact that he was alone on his birthday and he couldn't be with his family. I mean, those moments of human connection there's a real hunger for them right now it's difficult times yeah and and that moment was devastating and and how i like i 
I admire, one of the things I admire the most about your reporting is that whether you're talking to a war criminal or, or a beautiful man in Italy that, that has tears in his eyes, you remain calm and collected. And how, how do you do that? <laughs> what is your I mean, method I'm doing that? Because <laughs> I think I would have just collapsed on the floor crying. <laughs> um, yeah, that, I mean, that moment definitely did um, break my heart a little bit and immediately left him and called my grandma, <laughs> to be honest. Because it's just such a, you know, I think beyond being a reporter, I'm a human, and we do these stories to make human connections. And I also think it's actually really important to maintain um, a certain level of vulnerability and um, and humanity when it comes to meeting subjects. I think there was a time when I went through, um, well, I think I started my reporting career and uh, was like so openly vulnerable and crying in interviews and stuff. And I don't think that was a good thing because you burn out of that pretty quickly mm -hmm. um and then I think I went through a phase where I was just you know too hard and too closed off to subjects and I didn't want to um open myself up to it or empathize with people because you just do sort of like create a numbness to it um mm -hmm. and I think and I hope now that I have sort of reached somewhat of a happy medium where you realize that like that there's a fine line but that empathy is really important um and you know that's you can't really tell a story well i think as a reporter unless you have that empathy um and at the same time some level of distance is important so you don't just end up an emotional wreck at the end of every single shoot because otherwise you just can't keep going frankly and you have to protect your well-being i imagine just yeah. the, the building and development of that mental and emotional fortitude to report on these stories that are so harrowing in many times. What was the most unexpected thing that you experienced or you discovered during your reporting in Italy? I think just the resilience of people there. Um, I mean, I've been talking to the subjects there um, for weeks before actually going there. Um, and I was kind of expecting to meet these people who were just really jaded and fed up with the situation. And they definitely are fed up with the situation, but they were also just incredibly strong. Um, you know, none of them um, were really like full of like hate or blame as I, I was kind of, it's kind of normal in situations where they've experienced so much mm -hmm. um, and just, yeah, full of kind of compassion and um, and strength, which was really, just really, I don't know if unexpected, but it was definitely warming. There was definitely a warmth to it. And I think that's a beautiful thing. I know that even just seeing in the United States, even seeing in my community here in Queens and New York, uh, to see the way that people can come together under such <laughs> extraordinary circumstances is one of the most beautiful silver linings of this situation. And, you know, I live five minutes away from Mount Sinai, Queens, and there are refrigerated trucks with dead bodies literally 10 minutes away from my apartment right here. And still, you know, at 7 p.m. every night, the entire neighborhood leans out their windows and cheers and claps and and every restaurant that can is giving food to the frontline workers on a regular basis three times a day and it's these humanity and it's exactly what you're saying is mm -hmm. that there 
in a situation that you expect people to just be riddled by anger and just completely buried alive by it, you're finding these glimmers of just hope and humanity, and, it, and it's beautiful. And, and I love that in your report in Italy, we could reach across the pond and, and I could see what it was like there. And everyone who watched it could see what the Italians are doing and how they're handling it and how they're feeling and just really connect. And that I think is the importance of what you do is the ability to connect and to reach across and see how people are surviving this. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. And I think that's why, I mean, during, before and after this pandemic, I'll continue to do um, international reporting because, you know, in a time where I think, I feel like um, actually in, in some ways the pandemic has been somewhat good for this because I feel like before um, coronavirus really hit, especially obviously in an election year in the US, um, the US media sphere has just got so obsessed with every tweet that Trump sends out, everything mm -hmm. that Trump does, and it's so US politics heavy. Um, and often we forget about, uh, or we don't care, we don't look to um, other places in the world or stories. And I actually think that that's a huge mistake. Um, I think that if coronavirus has taught us anything, it is that the world is smaller than we think, that we can be affected by things that happen in a completely different, seemingly alien country on the other side of the world. Um, that it's important to understand these things. It's important to understand how the world turns and how we all um, coexist. And I think that, um, I hope that maybe that's one positive thing that comes out of this. Absolutely. I want to ask you how you find your stories, especially right now, because, you know, as you mentioned earlier in the conversation, you're in isolation in the UK with your family. So when you're thinking of the next great story and, and the next coverage, where are you finding it? Is it just daily news consumption? Is it local papers? Is it word of mouth? How are you identifying your next story? Um, it really depends. It's kind of a mishmash of things. Um, I mean, mm -hmm. obviously with the Asian racism story that I'm working on at the moment, it comes from firstly a personal place of, you know, mm -hmm. seeing a lot of my family members um, and a lot of my peers being um, targeted. Um, and so, and reading up on it and contacting um, hate crime groups, etc., and figuring out that there is, it's a trend, it's a pattern, it's not just kind of a a one-off anecdote. And I want to try to end a little bit on a somewhat optimistic note. And I want to talk to you about isolation. Good luck when it comes to me. <laughs> yeah. But I want to talk to you about isolation. You know, we you're at home with your family. I'm here with my dog and my cat and my boyfriend. And, and all this time. In that order. <laughs> yeah, in, in that order. And I want to talk to you about how you're finding joy right now, whether it's cooking or painting or whatever it is what is bringing you joy oh that's a nice question um <laughs> i i actually do a lot of cooking um i bake which is something that a lot of brits apparently turn to when um there's a pandemic clearly um i think that the whole of <laughs> all the grocery stores are out of flour and eggs etc my dad managed to speak me um left me some flour on my doorsteps so that was nice oh. so i've been baking like a a mad woman um, what are you baking? I have to ask. I'm baking, it, I'm baking it, a lot of Asian treats. Um, oh. Yeah, coconut tarts, egg, egg tarts, a lot of Asian things. Um, 
Um, so I'm doing a lot of that. I'm also I'm also meditating. I uh, discovered meditation recently, and there's actually this great app called Insight Timer, um, which I use quite a lot for daily meditations. Um, and just in a time where my mind feels like it's constantly exploding with anxiety, um, I I meditate my way through it and try and stay zen. And it lasts for a couple of hours before I need to get back to the baking. <laughs> and can you repeat the name of that app, both for me and for anyone on who's desperate for relief of, from anxiety? What was yeah. that? Insight Timer. Insight Timer. Okay, yeah. I will definitely be downloading that later. I would recommend it, yeah. Yeah, I have been cooking as well, although I have not gotten into baking, but any recipes oh. you can share with me, please do. It seems like in the United States, the only thing being baked right now is banana bread. <laughs> which yeah, I'm not a fan of. So <laughs> I would love some recipes. <laughs> yeah, it's honestly just such a nice release. I really enjoy it. It's, um, well, all my family are in the restaurant industry or the food industry anyway, so um, there's been a lot of recipe sharing. A lot of late night calls to my dad asking how the hell to um, cook a roast duck and <laughs> other <laughs> extravagant things that I never thought I'd be doing. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, love that. I have been, I have been slightly... Um, I mean, I've been, you know, obviously incredibly frustrated, but there is a part of me that enjoys this moment of being able to be still. Um, you know, I travel so much for my work and it's very rare that I get to spend this much time with my family. And um, and also just to reflect on, you know, I, I have so much guilt over um, my carbon footprint in the world. Mm-hmm. And so to be able to take a break on that is... Um, I'm, I'm trying to remember that that's a positive thing and that I, I something I can hold on to. And that's so important. I think at the end of the day, all any of us can really do is just identify the moments of gratitude, identify the little joys and just hold on to them. Thank you so much. Again, I am editor at Unearth Woman. Isabel was the first cover star for our magazine. She is an inspiration to me. I consider her just an incredible woman that I'm honored to know. And Please continue to follow Isabel's work. Go watch her segment on the Italy reporting. And we are all eagerly awaiting your next segment. And thank you so much. Thank you. you.